Screen favorite Alan Rickman directs and stars in a new period film about Louis XIV, co-starring Oscar winner Kate Winslet. In this episode of 92Y Talks, he discusses A Little Chaos with Real Pieces moderator Annette Insdorf. The conversation was recorded on June 18, 2015 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Welcome, Alan Rickman. It is Thank really you. an honor to have you here. I'm going to start off with a few questions about the film that we have just enjoyed and a few about your career, and then... <laughs> and then, of course, we will take a few from the audience as well. Um, I know you directed one film before this. I mentioned The Winter Guest. Here, I, I would not have necessarily expected this will be an Alan Rickman film. Can you tell us about how this came to you? Um, I know that you share the screenplay credit with Alison Deegan, a first-time screenwriter who's an actress, and Jeremy Brock, who had written screenplays like Mrs. Brown. But at, at what point did you say, this speaks to me and why? Well, um... It, unfortunately, I don't think you can have an accurate screenplay, which uh, a screenplay credit, which should read "screenplay by Alison Deegan, interfered with by Alan Rickman, <laughs> Jeremy Brock." Uh, that would be more accurate, and that's the truth. Uh, you know, Alice, it is her first screenplay, and somewhere along the line, in the way of things it kind of needed a couple of structural engineers, I suppose, and, and people with an eye on the budget. But uh, it landed through my letterbox <laughs> one day, uh, all 180 pages of it. And, and as I, I've talked about this before, so I'm not being disloyal to her, Alison is dyslexic. So it was 180 pages of a script with almost no punctuation. <laughs> except a comma after every three words. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it took a while to read it, but, um, but I kind of, like all good scripts, you're hooked by about page four. I think somebody's probably said this is a classic way of knowing that it's a film you're gonna be involved in. You keep turning the pages and uh, she's extremely Irish, and I knew her and know her husband quite well, who's very well, who's Sebastian Barry, who's a wonderful novelist and playwright. And uh, so writing's d d absolutely in the household. And I think what happened was once her kids were kind of grown up, she, she thought, well, I'm not acting at the moment, and I'm just going to sit down and write. And she really knows her stuff about uh, the court of Louis XIV. So um, not only did it have a kind of veracity to it, and also uh, a, a real beauty to the language because it's slightly off the ground, you know, in the same way as Beckett is Beckett, partly because he's Irish, or maybe largely because he's Irish. There's a, there's a use of English that is very special. Um, but also because she'd taken a period of history that we all think we know something about, and, or at least we have preconceptions. Uh, so for, uh, I'm sure most of you know this, but you know, okay, there's a Louis XIV, there's a Versailles, there's a Lenotre who designed the gardens. There absolutely is not a woman landscape gardener. And this, in many ways, is Alison's point. Why not? And, uh, and where are the modern parallels to a situation of a male-dominated world where a woman would not and could not have had a profession like that? There were women, women were cooking, cleaning, sewing at one level of society or uh, standing about looking gorgeous at the other level of society and getting dumped as soon as they weren't quite so gorgeous anymore. So. Um, and I really admired the way she'd made a real world that was half fantasy, half reality. Mm. Hence the opening coy title, This Much At Least Is True, because <laughs> I think you open up right away the question of 
how much of this has a historical accuracy, and how much of this is a license that we are going to take with great skill and imagination. Now, partly because you also are playing Louis XIV, it leads me to ask what I hope isn't a silly question, um, but, but to what extent is a director like a king? In other words, to what extent did you feel that you could organize this world as if the crew you know, were your people in court, or is this a ludicrous parallel? <laughs> Um, well, it was never my idea to play the part. <laughs> that much is true. It became a kind of economic necessity, and anybody that knows anything about, you know, there's one actor there that didn't have to be paid on the call sheet. Um, so once I'd accepted it, or been pushed into it uh, by the producers, you, you're grateful for the fact that he's not in every scene. and. Um, and it is true to say that at some point I thought, well, actually, you know, there's something here that makes it a little less difficult than it might be, which is whatever is the look in the eye of a director on the set, uh, you know, ever watchful and seeing everything, um, is probably useful for Louis XIV. Uh, but there the resemblance ends because, you, you know, I, because I am an actor, I approach the film set and my fellow actors as a much more democratic process than perhaps a despot or <laughs> a deus ex machina or a sun king might. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that I'm certainly aware of the fact that Somebody said to me this, that you know, going, making a film is like going to war, and it's, it's sort of true. And you are uh, the head of the cavalry, but you know, you look behind you and there's this fantastic infantry. Mm. And the great thing about a f film crew is that they're all experts. They all know so much about their jobs and none of them ever challenge you. Almost to a fault, really, because I had to say to the first AD, Jack Ravenscroft, I said, if you ever see me about to make a really dumb decision, you must tell me. And I think he found it really difficult to do that because not in their DNA at all. Mm. So hopefully it was not a Louis XIV experience for the crew. Well, if anything, on second viewing tonight, I felt that you as a director might in fact have identified to some extent more with either Sabine or Le Nôtre than Louis XIV. And I say this because when you introduce the characters, and I love your introduction of each in three consecutive scenes, Le Nôtre is the one whose eye has a close-up behind that little uh, lens because he's surveying the landscape, but it's like what a director does. And then Sabine is introduced very creatively with her colored uh, crayons, and she's the one who we see working from a blueprint, but then improvising. And it struck me that Le Nôtre and Sabine are like two halves of a really good filmmaker. And did you feel that, you know, you were in some sense identifying with those characters? If I ever find myself talking to young actors now, I always find myself talking about the fact that discipline and freedom are two sides of the same coin and you can't have one without the other. Um, you can't be really free unless you're, it's supported by real discipline and the other way around. And the film is called A Little Chaos because it's the other side of a lot of order. And, uh, you know, they don't make sense without each other. You don't have chaos unless it's in destroying some order. And so somewhere in there, is some sort of definition of what it is to make a piece of art, I think. Even with the line, chaos must conform to budget, which I think uh, Le Nôtre says at one point, which I think is probably the self-conscious line that many filmmakers are dogged by. Um, I also felt that for somebody who is more of an actor than, let's say, a director with a long list of credits, there was such a sensitivity to, to the imagery. 
And I know that some of this has to do with the script and some of it with the brilliant work, we'll get to this later, of Ellen Kouris, the cinematographer. But Who's you... here, by the way, and she should stand up and say hello. Yes, she should. I think she's up on the aisle over there. I won't go into a long list of her credits, but she already shot Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, among other films that she has made. Um, but were you conscious of this wonderful circular imagery from the way that we meet Sabina through drawing the snails, the lethal carriage wheel, and then the end, it has this just beautiful sense of circularity as they dance around the circular space. I mean, was that a conscious thing or just, you know, am I reading into it too much? Um, it's a kind of um, <clears throat> collective conversation that goes on between, you know, when you're around the table in pre-production, which was an incredibly fruitful and creative time with, with Ellen and with James Curas and <clears throat> Joan, who did the clothes, and Ivana. Primarach, who did the hair and makeup, all of those elements, and also Jonah, the location manager, about where we were looking to shoot. And, and so, you know, you get in a van and you arrive somewhere and you, 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 you go there and you think, no, this is going to work. And uh, that scene where Louis is <clears throat> uh, offering him a macaroon. Um, just arrived at it and I said, we'll put the chair there, because, uh, and then I talked to Ellen and said, we've got to get the camera up so that they're high. So I didn't know we were looking for that, but you, 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 uh, there's a collective energy, which means decisions are taken, and then there is some, uh, I guess you'd call it improvising. You arrive somewhere and say, that'll do, that'll work. Sure. But I think with what, what distinguishes a good movie from a motion picture that a lot of us want to talk about and tell others to see, in my case, is where there's this aesthetic coherence tied to a real vision, to a thematic richness. And this film, for me, you know, has it in spades, water too. Water, which at one point in the film is pure chaos, you know, when it floods the garden. And then at the end, the controlled water, the way that it's been tamed and rendered part of a truly harmonious vision. And, Again, the taming of the elements is something that is not unrelated to what a filmmaker has to do. Um, because you are an actor, and you mentioned how important it is to talk to the actors, did you have a rehearsal period where you gave them a chance to find the character, or did you prefer to just you know, go straight to shooting with as little of that preparatory part as possible? No, I, I would... Um... Well, I, I wouldn't say I would always. I think it depends on the piece of work, but certainly with this one, I had to, I didn't have to fight too hard, but it, it does have to be budgeted. And um, I think I got about 10 days rehearsal. Um, it's heightened language. You need to make sure that everybody is uh, feeling the rhythms of Alison's writing. And it helps to just be sitting around a table <clears throat> with just the script, the director, and the actors. And in terms of your actors, I must say, um, this audience has met Kate Winslet on the stage before, and I'm, I think many of us are profound fans, and we adore Stanley Tucci, and I was wondering if you could talk a little about how you cast him as the flamboyant brother of the king. Well, Stanley kept, in, he's a good friend, and we'd worked with, together before, and he just kept insisting on wanting to read it, so. <laughs> um, and so in the end, you know, you, I, I don't know, an instinct or something lands uh, with everybody. I, with Kate, it was, it was really about that. When, when we were ready to shoot the film and we'd sort of got the finance and we'd steered us, towards a starting point, and it had taken a few years because I wasn't free to direct a film. Um, certainly when I started, she wasn't the right age to play it. You know, you've got to have somebody in their mid to late 30s to play that part. And so serendipity meant that when we were all ready, she was 
the right age. And, and then you, and then Matthias arrived on the scene with Rust and Bone. And, you know, uh, it's, it's a tough um, balancing act, Kate's energy. And in this film specifically, because she's playing a strong, independent woman. And, uh, and it, it allows her, and I hope she won't mind this, to play the masculine side that she has. And, and that's a strength of hers. It was a question, as far as I was concerned, of finding an actor who's not afraid to play his feminine side. Uh, and then I think that be becomes sexy. <laughs> uh, and, and that he's patient and that she's got a huge backlog of past life to unload before they can come together and he's got to come to terms with that. It's very difficult to find that. And then again, I think it's serendipity. I was, in fact, I was filming in Belgium and um, his name had been mentioned and I'd seen Rust and Bone. He's wonderful in it. If you haven't seen that film, it's a wonderful film. And, and I thought, well, yeah, but he's Belgian. <laughs> this is not gonna work. Uh, these people are all French, uh, but they're gonna be speaking English. Uh, there's got to be some continuity here. So, I mean, I knew Stanley could do it with a bit of <laughs> hammering over the head. But. <laughs> and a bit of ham, too. Um, so, uh, thank God for something I never normally go near called social media, and I hit YouTube, Matthias Skernitz, and there he was in LA giving an interview in perfect English about Rust and Bone, but with an American accent. So we just had to iron that out. And... Yeah, it works. So I don't know, it's somewhere in there, you just kind of felt, you say, okay, Stanley, come on, let's, <laughs> what? let's do it. And it requires, it was great that it had that sort of somewhat anarchic energy coming in. You know, we, we, there is a whole film to be made about that character, and, and Stanley is one of the people who lost quite a bit of material along the way. Um, if you look at paintings of Monsieur, as he's called, um, Often, he's wearing a dress. <laughs> and what his wife, you know, he, he and his wife did have like four kids and he was a great fighter at war. Although the line that's been cut from the film sadly is his wife saying, but he, he arrives a bit late because he has a lot of dressing to do. <laughs> <laughs> the two of you were hilarious in a film that kind of I missed when it was released, but I saw it in preparation for tonight, Gambit, um, which uh, it, it was a remake and, and it was directed by Michael Hoffman, who was our guest a few years ago from a script by the Coen brothers. But I must say, Stanley Tucci playing a German art dealer connoisseur with a very thick accent was so funny that it, it made the film even more delightful and your mega billionaire character was quite funny along with Cameron Diaz and Colin Firth. Um, and by the way, with Kate Winslet, I, I know that most of us probably remember this, but there's a history in Sense and Sensibility. Um, already they had connection. And um, I just realized something, that clip was missing from the reel. Was it in the reel? That was supposed to be in there. I don't know what happened. I just, because I just realized I had a picture of you and her that I didn't see tonight. She probably cut it. <laughs> she was 19. That's true, that's true. Um, and uh, this kind of leads me into another question because one of the scenes in the film that moved me most deeply was the introduction of Sabine to the woman of the court. Because to, when she was approaching the women, I thought, oh, these vain and narcissistic people. Yeah, I just, self-absorbed. And then all of a sudden, you peel away the layers within about two seconds, and you realize that every single one of these women has a story, has a painful past. And there is such sympathy, even for, I mean, in a momentary part, Phyllida Law, the mother of Emma Thompson, who co-starred with her daughter, in The Winter Guest, you know, the older woman next to Sabine, who's, you know, her husband and her 
uh, son died, I'm barely here, is her line. I, I'm just kind of interested in the question, was this merely in the script? Or I think I'm feeling in the whole film, and actually in your other work, The Winter Guest too, a real sympathy for female characters, both young and old, both strong and frail. Where does that come from? It was probably beaten into me by my mother, I think. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Uh, I've, made, I've directed two films. They happen both to have been written by women. I, you know, I didn't write either of them. Uh, as I say, I interfered with the second one. I probably interfered quite a bit with the first one, but um, it's, it's largely circumstance, and um, probably what I'm as interested in, if I think about it objectively, is removing um, the rule book about relationships between men and women. I think one of the things that's the, the guiding lines to me of this film are at the end when a woman says, what about us? And a man says, we will shape each other. Um, these are hard won, these thoughts and feelings between men and women in a world that uh, has stereotypes thrown at us every day. And, um, and indeed the scene with the women, you know, they have to be locked away in a room of their own before they can talk about real stuff. The rest of the time they move like an army in mm. front of a wall of men and then fall to the floor. Um, so uh, I don't find, as a man, people say it's a feminist film, I, uh, yes. It is, although that word to me is just common sense. You know, you'll have a more interesting life if, <laughs> if things are more equal. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, maybe it's partly to do with being an actor. My life is constantly, you know, I've spent my life, as, uh, time as an actor opposite, opposite people like Kate Winslet, uh, Emma Thompson, Harriet Walter, Juliet Stevenson. Uh, these are not weak souls, <laughs> but they're fascinating people. You're fascinating. <laughs> oh, Someone said you're fascinating. <laughs> but I am, I'm going to push this slightly because I was thinking about it now watching the film the second time. Even the vindictive wife of Le Nôtre, who for me in another director's hands might have been more of a caricature. You, for example, right after the scene where, you know, uh, her husband is basically telling her, you know, leave me, it, this is pretty much over, you have a long close-up on her face, which we see is no longer quite so young. Helen McCrory, by the way, is, I think, this extraordinary actress, too. We've seen her in the, but she's always the wife of Tony Blair in, in Peter Morgan written films, and she was great in Hugo. Um, you know from that momentary glimpse that the camera stays on her, that she's not, you know, villainous, that she's not evil. Her power is predicated on her being either desirable or well-connected, and she's vulnerable and knows it. And it's that extra two seconds of screen time that made me feel that completely. I mean, so maybe I'm pushing this idea that you, you do things cinematically that make us feel the richness of the female as well as male characters. Um, well, it's a film where people, uh, or it's a, certainly a story, and so I'm hopefully putting that on film, where people are figuring out who they are. And um, one of the great gifts of working with people like Kate and Helen and Matthias is you can leave the camera on them, and then you find all sorts of riches in the editing room. Uh, Kate, let's talk about her specifically. Um, she comes to the set so prepared, she's ready. She's done her homework. You never have to wor worry about whether she knows the lines. That's not 
nowhere in your thinking. That's just a given. But, um, and she's a big star, whatever that means to other actors on a film set. But there is no sense of that status getting in the way of the status of the character she's playing. So, um, you know, she comes into that scene at the beginning with uh, the other two interviewees, and they're both, Adrian Schiller and Adrian Scarborough, are both very fine British stage actors. But there's no sense of her doing anything but playing exactly the status she has with them. And then, truly listening. And, and that's, I suppose, what the rehearsal room for, is for as well, is to encourage listening. But also, what you do so beautifully with her character, and, and secondarily with the others, is the physicality. In other words, even though she is rightfully compared to a rose because she has this unforced natural beauty, you have a shot of her early on after she's been stripping the branches from the tree with great physical energy, where she's sitting in the middle of that, of these huge um, parts of the tree, and she looks like she's a part of it herself. I got the feeling that she is a tree because she is sturdy and grounded and nurturing. And you have so many shots of her physically doing the things that Sabine would be doing. And I, I suspect that was your decision, not just in the screenplay, to, to show her in that manner. Well, it was uh, inevitable in a script that has the making of the, that garden by her. It's inevitable, you're gonna have to show it. I wish that we'd had the budget to show that garden growing gradually. You know, what we had to do was shoot the end first and then destroy it gradually. So. Um, <laughs> helped by the English weather. <laughs> Wait, so, English yeah. weather. So this was shot entirely in England? Mm -hmm. Fooled me. See, what I, the first time I saw the film, I was convinced that you had shot at Versailles, and I thought, how in the world did they get permission? But obviously, I'm a very impressionable moviegoer. Uh, so you, cho you chose to shoot entirely in England, and, and also on 35 millimeter? Uh, on film, yeah, yeah that okay. was, um, well, Ellen, do you want to talk about that? No? Yeah, I, I, it certainly looks extraordinary. Um, uh, why England and not France at all? Uh, budget. <laughs> Sorry. You know, traveling them all over there, but also... Um, uh, Versailles at the time of the film was covered in scaffolding, you know, not just the interior that we did for one of the scenes where he's walking through, but the outside. So we're not going to be able to do that. And then I always knew that at some point we were going to have to come above Versailles. And yeah, you're quite right. You're not allowed to have a helicopter anywhere near uh, um, Versailles. And so we would have been reduced to that word a drone. I'm not finishing the film on a drone shot, thank you very much. Um, and then what you discover, thanks to your great location manager, is that not only has England thieved the Elgin marbles, um, but we've also pinched quite a few genuine French 17th century interiors. And one of them's in Waddesdon Manor, and that's where the rose gets passed over to the king, so that's all genuine French stuff on the, in the room. Uh, Cliveden, which is now a hotel, you can all go and stay there. Uh, <laughs> and if you go into the dining room, you'll maybe recognize it as Louis XIV's bedroom. Uh. <laughs> so, um, and, and also Blenheim Palace, and we were allowed to shoot in the state apartments, which is, that's never, permission's never been given before, so. And weirdly, in the room where she walks into uh, the party and uh, Helen's character is kissing her boyfriend and she meets Lenotra at the party, we had to be very careful with a statue we couldn't move because it was Louis XIV. <laughs> in the room. 
<laughs> with a painting of him over the mantelpiece. Wow. <laughs> Another element that struck me is the score, because even though the music is lush, I found it a different experience from most of the movies I see lately, which is wall-to-wall -wall sound. There are so many moments of silence, especially during the dialogue scenes. So I have two questions. One was, it, I gather it's a first score for the cellist composer Peter Gregson. Was that written before, during, or after the film? And second, was it a is it my imagination that most of the music is with visual aspects, the camera moving, but not while people are speaking? I can't actually remember the answer to the second one. Uh, I, d I don't think there's music while people are speaking, no. Um, not that that would be conscious, but no, I think the mu music is there to be underneath the film at all times. I, I went to a, a, a ballet, there's a small theater in London called The Print Room, and uh, it's just moved its venue, but then it was in a very small place in West London with, you could only seat about 50 people. And uh, very brave and um, adventurous ballet was being done where water was pouring on the dancers from the ceiling. And we were all given plastic max to watch this <laughs> ballet because we're so close to the dancers. But um, and whilst trying not to get wet, I was also thinking, this music's extraordinary because there's something about it that uh, is of water. And, uh, and I, not that this film is about water, but I always knew that water was going to have something to do with the fountain, obviously, and, uh, and also uh, it was the most unegocentric um, composing because the music was utterly supportive of what the dancers were doing. And um, anyway, you know, another instinct, really. I'm a great believer in this thing of nobody ever became famous till somebody gave them a, an opportunity. So. Um, I just, a friend of mine had lit this ballet and I rang him up and said, can you put me in touch with the composer, please? And we met. And I think after about half an hour, I said, do you want to compose this film? Wow. And so fast forward to this actually very moving moment for me at a huge recording studio in London, watching him pick up his baton and tap it and with great control and calm. Um, uh, get the, have the orchestra play the score. Uh, and to answer the other part of your question, it was composed during and after. He was, the good thing about it, he, he was only 26 at the time. He's 28 years old now. Um, uh, he was um, there all the time. Well, um, it's very he was on the set. He breathed the film in. Uh, he, he, he maintains a kind of wonderful, um, benign smile almost all the time, even when I'm saying to him, that's horrible, that piece of music. <laughs> that's completely not going to work. And he's toiled the whole weekend over it. Okay, okay, and goes away. And... Well, um, the, the question of music just reminds me, because we showed a clip from Sweeney Todd, that you have manifested a bit of musical talent yourself, because we showed the duet that you do with um, Johnny Depp, um, you sing quite well, it would appear. I mean, is music part of your life, or...? Uh, well, in the bathroom, like <laughs> everybody else, I think that, you know, I've, I've often said that one of the most challenging sentences I've ever heard in my life was, I was, because we recorded that separately, um, so I never actually sang it with Johnny Depp. And so I was rehearsing it alone, and um, well, Johnny Depp and I mimed it together for two days. Uh, but it was recorded. And then they got to balance the two voices. So it doesn't make any sense to record it together. Um, yeah, you try standing in a room, and you're just you and the pianist, and uh, at the end of what's your kind of last session with the pianist and the accompanist and a door opens, and Stephen Sondheim walks in. <laughs> and he says, 
Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> and even I, professional singers, I've heard them say that sometimes music is the hardest to sing. Oh, a nightmare. Yeah. There's a couple of notes in that where I just wanted to kill him. I, you know, why is it that note? Why isn't it that note that's so much easier? And of course, that's the point. Hmm. Now, you've worked with Tim Burton twice, Sweeney Todd and Alice in Wonderland, and also with such an array of really fine filmmakers. I'm thinking Ang Lee with Sense and Sensibility, Neil Jordan from Michael Collins, uh, Anthony Minghella, Truly Madly Deeply, and a few that are perhaps less known, but for me are equally worthy, like Joseph Sargent um, for Something the Lord Made. Were there particular directors from whom you learned a bit more to help you direct? All of them. Um, because as you go on, you realize that what makes them and I've been very lucky, I've worked with some wonderful directors, but they have almost nothing in common with each other. And <laughs> I guess that's the point. Um, you, it's a singular eye, and you have to develop that. And also, as I absolutely learned from Anthony Mingala on his first film, because he gathered the cast and crew together, and he said on the first days that I have one word, help. <laughs> And also, as time goes on, you, you know that the most encouraging thing a director can um, say at any point when you ask them a question is to say, I don't know. Uh, that's actually quite reassuring, because it means you'll find out you know, together, and they've got the guts to say that. So yeah, a lot of it's to thine own self be true, I think. No. I think one of my former students put it nicely. He said, you have to have the courage of your confusion. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a question. You are not the actor that would come to mind when I'd want to cast Ronald Reagan. So not I was me. just curious. <laughs> <laughs> I thought your Ronald Reagan in Lee Daniels, the butler, was spot on. <clears throat> um, but it, it, that was just a very curious thing for me. And could you talk just a little about what it was like to prepare and do that? Well, you imagine. You're English, and, uh, and there is no rehearsal. And you sit down on the set, and... Uh, you're in the set of the Oval Room, and you've got prosthetics on and a wig and all of that. And a bit like uh, Stephen Sondheim and Lee Daniel says, okay, let's hear it. That's it. <laughs> well, um, you know, you have to work at it. You have to figure out what you're gonna do. Uh, how do you have to work it? Because how do I get this voice to be that voice? And then, uh, you know, it's a, the case of working with a brilliant dialect teacher called Tom Jones, which was interesting enough for me, but, <laughs> but he is brilliant. And uh, to, he very much took me around the architecture of the mouth and tongue muscles and how to produce that sound. Mm. And not to be a slavish copy either. No, I, I didn't feel that it was an imitation, but it caught something yeah. of the essence. And I guess it helps that Jane Fonda was pretty good as Nancy, uh, as, uh, Nancy Reagan, too. So the two of you worked. Um, I also did want to ask one question about something the Lord made, because I have a feeling fewer people here know that film. I, I was very moved by it. And you did a wonderful job with a Southern accent, playing Dr. Alfred Blalock, and I, I think you received an Emmy nomination for that. Um, again, could you just tell us a little about what led you to that project? Um, I was offered it. Uh, <laughs> Okay. And you felt that this would be something that you responded to? Well, it was a fascinating story that I didn't know about, you know, the first Blue Baby operations. And, uh, and I, I don't know if everybody else here knows it. It's worth watching just to, the history of um, uh, black people trying to have any kind of profession, never mind a woman, in 17th century France. And Vivian Thomas who was Blaylock's assistant, black assistant, at Johns Hopkins Hospital. 
Um, he had done all of the um, test operations on dogs for um, rerouting the vessels in order to um, reroute uh, the blood so that um, Blue Baby's blood ran red. Uh, it's an incredibly moving moment in the film when it happens. Uh, but he had done all of that preparatory work. And when it came to the actual operation, he wasn't allowed into the operating theater. Uh, and Blaylock famously had him, first of all, Vivian Thomas was given a white coat to wear. That, was, that had never happened before. They were wearing brown coats. And he brought him into the operating theater and had a stool placed behind him because you have to remember, Blaylock had never done this operation. Mm. He had a stool placed behind him and Vivian Thomas stood on the stool and looked over Blaylock's shoulder as he was doing this incredibly delicate um, stitching. And you're talking about stitching two pieces of spaghetti together. Um, I know so little about this world that the very first time I did the, um, the miming of this operation, I had this sort of needle and cotton and I was going. Till <laughs> 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 the expert doctor said, hey, but Laurie said, that's not gonna work. <laughs> this is really tiny. What you're doing is down here. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Before we turn this over to audience questions, I, of course, want to raise theater, at least for a moment. Obviously, we're more of a film audience, but you've done remarkable work in theater, and not only as an actor, but as a director. Um, and I believe you even directed The Winter Guest on stage before doing it as a film. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the immediate future, do you see your professional life divided kind of equally? Do you feel at this stage in your life that you lean more towards one or the other, theater or film, acting or directing? I, I honestly don't know uh, what the future holds. Uh, you know, I'm, I mean, there is a movie coming out soon called Eye in the Sky, in which I play the head of the British Army talking of the word drones. It's about the use of drones um, by governments uh, to deal with terrorist threats. Um, so there's that. Uh, there's a reprise of uh, Alice in Wonderland um, coming out. There's potentially a film about, uh, from a Peter Ackroyd novel called Dan Leno in the Limehouse Golem, which is a Victorian murder story. That's all I know. Um, theater is religion to me. And I, if you have done a six month run in anything, uh, it really takes a while before you can think of doing it again. I'm sort of, pawing the ground and thinking something will happen in the theater. <laughs> and would I be right to assume that the experience of directing A Little Chaos was gratifying enough that you do want to direct more films? Yeah, uh, but I, I really, I'm, you know, Ellen was looking up um, Scorsese the other day on her iPhone and she said, He's got 15 films in development. I mean, I wouldn't, I would not know how to live that kind of life. And I don't know how directors jump straight from one film to another. You know, it's a long process of it leaving you, I think, um, for me. Um, so I don't know where another one enters in at the moment, but I guess I'd better not hang about. <laughs> We're going to raise the lights and we take a few, there's, and I'll repeat the questions. There's a gentleman right here, then here, and then here, and then I'll go to the rest. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm a big fan. Thank you. I'm a big fan. Yeah, the movie is fantastic. I like Die Hard, very good, and especially I like you and Roman Atkinson singing Love Actually. So, okay, my question, you didn't mention my favorite movie, Galaxy Quest. I didn't mention the favorite movie, Galaxy Quest.
I think Thank you. It, it, a compliment about being very <laughs> funny. Do you play the funny on yeah. purpose? Is it intentional or is it your natural yeah, yeah. humor coming to the fore? Um, uh, the simple answer is yes. Because I think but it's not about gags, and it's not about making people laugh. It's just, I mean, I, I, I think I got some laughs when I played Hamlet. <laughs> but hopefully that's the laughter of recognition, and uh, you're, you know, you're, people are funny, people are ridiculous, and then they're sad as well, and, um, and that's what makes them human beings. So it's not gags, but I, I hope you can make people, making people smile is part of making them human. Thanks. Yes. Uh, I have come into the, I have some programs from Vladimir's Tool. Oh my God. From, I have some programs from your early plays, Vladimir's Stool. Good grief. <laughs> that was in about 1822. Good. Where did you get these from? From someone who was in school a year behind you. Oh. From someone who was in school a year behind you. Okay. I was wondering, is there any particular play that really that you did at Latimer that got you started? Was there any particular play that you did at Latimer that got you started? You have to remember that when I was there, it was an all-boys school, but we had a very strong drama tradition, and so uh, quite a lot of us had to put a frock on sometimes. <laughs> Um, uh, and I remember playing Volumnia in Coriolanus, <laughs> age 17. I was Coriolanus's mum. <laughs> I remember playing Annie in Sergeant Musgrave's dance, who's the local prostitute. So, um, you know, it was a, a school where you knew anything was possible, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I owe an awful lot to that school, huge amount, and to the English staff, and I would never lessen it. They, it, it still is a really good school, and it's probably much better now that it's co-educational, but, um, and I'm still sort of involved, you know, I go there, because I really do owe it a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the guys in my year did physics, maths, and art for his three subjects at what we call A-level, which is like before you go to university. So I, I always found that incredibly affecting, that the school would allow that, and that actually he wound up being an art teacher. So, um, yeah, we did, we, our drama tradition at the school was done at a very high level. Um, but also always with a sense of the ridiculous. <laughs> right here and then on the aisle. Okay, you mentioned that doing the period piece is always difficult. You mentioned that doing a period film is always difficult because you have to deal with the lighting, with the costuming and the weather. I'm wondering, as a graphic designer, if there's any period in time that you particularly like. When it comes to artwork or even filming. When it comes to artwork or even filming. You trained as a graphic designer, right? I did, yeah. Um, and that's, of course, crucial to me. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, I was at art school for five years and then three years running a design group. So it's like you put that bit of you on a shelf when you decide to then train as an actor and then all that taxpayers' money. <laughs> but things come round. And so, of course, I have shorthand conversations with Ellen and James and, and Joan Bergen on costume because your eye is trained. You don't lose that. Um, uh, no, I'm not particularly selective about periods. You know, I love going to um, art galleries and looking at paintings. and. 
And I, I'm fascinated by what happens with architecture in cities um, and that the way they can help or destroy urban life. Um, and there are things in there to be fought for. Um, but I think you have to have an eye on the future all the time. I, I love modern architecture. Uh, what I would say is that um, when I was at art school, there was another religion which was called typography and uh, we didn't have computers. So it was all done by hand and it was really rigorous, the spacing between letters. Now young art students doing graphic design, just it's on their computer and they can just make it tighter or stretch it. Or, so you don't learn the rules and it's a bit like discipline and freedom again. And I think it's great to be free, but it's a shame that they don't know the rules of typography. And I was taught by a typographic genius called Ed Wright. And that doesn't leave me. So of course, things like the Bauhaus are important to me because it's rigor. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Oh, can you talk a little bit about your experiences on the Harry Potter films and, and your role? What would you like to know? <laughs> Did uh, you have a good time doing it? Well, it's an extraordinary experience. You know, there isn't anything to compare it to. When I said I would do it, there were only three books, so... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't quite know what any of us were letting ourselves in for. Um, and to realize that, and, and by, after the third film, we sort of got it organized a bit so that um, I was, uh, I and the other adult characters were on average, I suppose, doing, I was doing seven weeks a year on each film in a bunch so that I had 45 weeks doing other things, you know, directing in the theater or being on stage six months here in New York. Um, in private lives and, um, and making other movies like Sweeney Todd or Love Actually. Or... So every year there'd be the seven weeks of buttoning up all those buttons and <laughs> putting on the wig and going, all right, okay, let's see where I am. Uh, and meanwhile, not quite noticing that these three people had gone from 12 to 22. So I think I'm still trying to process that experience. Um, it was, uh, some, uh, during that period, um, computer graphics grew up. So when we started, we were on locations. By the time we finished, we were on a piece of grass out the back with a big stadium of lights because they could invent anything and put it around us. So the, the physical life of doing the films changed drastically during that period. Never mind just watching them grow up and, I, and you kind of thinking, I guess they've been through pu puberty somewhere here. And <laughs> you can't quite treat them as 12 year olds anymore. Um, and fighting for process for them because, you know, whereas I was seven weeks, they were 52 weeks. And, uh, so, you know, you were praying that they were having some sort of normal life, and it's a miracle that the three young actors came out of it sane, and, <laughs> and um, in a way, they're all just like their characters, so that was, you know, it's, it's sort of no accident that Emma winds up making a feminist speech at uh, the UN. Um, it was a unique experience and I wouldn't have missed anything for it. And I'm proud of the fact that we all took it dead seriously. And you know, there was no messing about. Well, there was a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we had to laugh sometimes. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of work to be gotten through every day. Um, but, you know, amazing work by Stuart Craig, the production designer. I never stopped being fascinated by picking up my wand and poking the wall <laughs> just to check that it really was polystyrene because it looked like a real castle. 
incredible skill sets around you everywhere. I think we have the gentleman in the back had his hand mm -hmm. up. Another question to talk about Galaxy Quest and, and your role in it, because you love that film, right? <laughs> we all, all of us who are in that film love that film. Um, Dean Pariso did a smart thing, which was to cast, apart from Tim, and even that was Tim Allen, that was probably a good thing. The rest of us had all grown up in the theater and of course, Tim hadn't. So, you know, it was, it was a mirror of what was going on in the film where he would kick open the door of the makeup van in the morning and say, okay, number one is here. <laughs> and we're all quietly preparing for the day. Um, yeah, it traded in on the fact that we'd all, we had all, we, we knew who those people were. And in a horrible way, <laughs> We knew who those people had become. Uh, so, you know, there, there I was in my rubber head, uh, <laughs> sitting next to Sigourney at the conference center with her blonde wig and signing pictures and throwing them back at people who are wearing hideous copies of my costume. And, <laughs> and there was a moment there where Sigourney just leant across to me. She said, this is a bit close for comfort. <laughs> But we had a glorious time doing it because it's a brilliant idea and, and a wonderful script. And, you know, therein is the secret. If you have a great script, you basically wind up just saying the lines because they're doing the work for you. But having said that, there was a lot of trouble not laughing. <laughs> I know there are more questions, but we are at the end of our time. And I just want to remind everybody all right, well, quickie. <laughs> so, you know, I, I saw an awfully big adventure. It was the first film I saw as a rich man, and it was the one when I started. And it had a whole subplot about theater. And the real question, what was it like to direct Alan Rickman in this film? I relied on Alan a lot. Um, you know, you have, you rely on the person who's looking down the lens. And also uh, the fact that most of the scenes are two-handers and again, they're very well written. If you just take the scene between Kate and I in the Rose Garden, um, is a beautifully written scene. And I really mean it when I say you just have to say the lines. The situation is so clear. Don't get in the way of it. You know, just play what's there. And when you've got an actress like her who just believes what she's doing in every bone of her body, and then you're, so here we are, and she says something. And then I, if I hear it, I have to answer it. Uh, I have a censoring device going on which says I'm Louis XIV, therefore this, 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 and this is in my rule book. She's got her rule book. That will inform what we do, but basically it's just down to she says something, I hear it, and I answer. Um, but as this young lady down here was saying, with that scene, every 30 seconds, we, we were there on a day when the wind changed, every 30 seconds a plane came over. So there's, that's the other reality, is hang on to your concentration and wait for the plane to go and then try to start again. But um, no, I, uh, I remember when I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company and Peter Brook, I was in a production of Anthony and Cleopatra that Peter Brook directed and he would come back and visit us from time to time and during the run and say, how's it going? We'd say, okay, well, this works, this doesn't work. This is better, this is not. And he said, I'm always amazed, you know, when actors run through the list of what's working and what isn't. The thing is, and he was talking about 
Anthony and Cleopatra, but let's just say, with a great script, you'll never be better than the play. Hmm. And it was true with Anthony and Cleopatra, you will never be better than that play. You'll always be trying to get there. So uh, I'm very aware as an actor of how much we all are servants of the writer. So June 26th, AMC Empire and On Demand, the film will be released. Thank you so much, Alan Rickman, for being with us tonight. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92YOnDemand.org.